The following is a conversation with Professor Mark Pellegrini. Mark is the head of the Infectious Diseases and Immune Defence Division of the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute of Medical Research. He received his PhD from the University of Melbourne and his primary interest is in host pathogen interactions. On the podcast, we discuss, amongst other things, vaccines and the origins of COVID-19. Mark's insights were fascinating and I had a great time talking with him. If you like this conversation, subscribe and review it with five stars on Apple Podcasts, follow on Spotify, or follow me on Instagram at Recorded Time Podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. to see the tennis last year so yeah i don't mind seeing a little bit of tennis uh, a good tennis so yeah i was happy to watch a little bit of it but uh yeah like i said i think that the uh, the thing that probably caught the media's attention the most was uh the the commotion at the end of the match when uh there was obviously some opposition to to people not wanting vaccines it's kind of disturbing i thought um it's certainly interesting I and mean, i think as as best we can in terms of trying to get a vaccine out into the community we've made things incredibly transparent um so it's certainly not mandatory by any means and i think uh people definitely should be able to make their own choices to whether they take it or not so to to, to just be promoting it and be, be booed i think is um a bit uh, unnecessary mm. it, i found it disturbing because it seemed to just speak to a, a larger distrust within the community in general, which, you know, it's almost like the silent majority sort of venting or something. Yeah, I mean, I think we've tried incredibly hard to keep everything transparent at, at every stage of COVID-19. One, the, you know, the virus entering to the community, the number of people who have been infected, the number of people who died. I mean, it's, it's all the numbers that are easily attainable uh, all you have to do is just be able to get onto a search engine on the web and you can see all this information in, in terms of the the vaccines the all the endeavors that went into developing therapeutics or trying to find therapeutics again they've all been pre-published peer-reviewed and often in the media before they've even been peer-reviewed so everyone's got opportunity to have a look at uh, a lot of this work but uh, it is frustrating that uh, people create this mystical clout and say that it's not obvious to them what's going on or that there's constituents in vaccines or constituents in this or that that could be causing um, harm or rather that, uh, that there's constituents in the vaccines that are, are deliberately put there to do something to populations. So I think that uh, yeah, I would never force someone to take a vaccine. I'd always uh, encourage people to be vaccinated against all diseases as best they can. Uh, but uh, to insinuate that there's something untowards about what we're doing, well, that's never been the endeavour. Obviously, we're just trying to save lives and uh, be able to go back to a degree of normality so that we can all uh, enjoy life. 
Are there any sort of off-target results with vaccines? Is it, say, one in 10,000 people has a severely adverse reaction and that is that are those instances that these crackpot conspiracy theorists will point to as an example where in reality, of course, there's going to be the occasional uh, person who's affected adversely when you're vaccinating billions of people? We certainly know, like, some vaccines... Um are somewhat restricted in their usage in that we can't give, I suppose, measles, mumps, rubella, which is a live vaccine to people that have got a suppressed immune system. So sometimes you, you, you know, people don't know that they've got a suppressed immune system and you give them the MMR vaccine and they have a, you know, a, a full-blown infection with these agents. So, yes, I mean, we've been giving vaccines forever and a day. Uh, if the question is directed... Um, primarily, I suppose, around the COVID vaccine, well, the, the vaccines have been constructed so that they're safe to give to people who have even got virtually no immune system. So the, the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, is there's nothing live in there. For the AstraZeneca vaccine, which the majority of Australians will be taking, um, it's a completely inactivated monkey virus um, but it can't replicate so it can infect cells but then it's like completely incompetent and it just carries the message so the body can um, start making a reaction towards uh, the spike protein of the coronavirus the spike protein is the sort of sticky tape that the virus uses to attach the cells so our body learns that it has to cover up this sticky tape so with the Pfizer vaccine about uh, 11 or so people per million doses will have uh, a reasonably serious uh, allergic reaction. So some of them might need to have an EpiPen, some of them will get hives and just need to be watched. So we've got those statistics and again, yeah, they're readily available on the internet if people choose to, to have a look and follow up the le legitimate sort of data that's out there. So we know that um, you know, no one's died from the vaccines. In fact, I think many people have probably, deaths have been prevented by the vaccines that have gone into America. We've seen this rapid slide in the number of deaths and uh, the number of people who are infected over the last month or so since they've rolled out the vaccine and they've done a pretty good job of that. The AstraZeneca vaccine, um, there seems to be even fewer side effects, so you don't quite see that number of, of allergic is reactions. That, is that partly because it's uh, less potent and uh, subsequently less effective? No, it's primarily because of a constituent in the Pfizer vaccine, which is called PEG, uh, polyethylene glycol, and so that's absolutely required for the... Um, the delivery of the vaccine. So it's not a preservative or anything. It's actually part and parcel. It's sort of like a, an emulsifier. It keeps the vaccine in a form where it can actually get into the body. That's not in the AstraZeneca vaccine. The AstraZeneca vaccine's got um, polysorbate 800, which is, con which is quite different. There is a tiny bit of cross-reactivity, but not a lot. Um, that acts as a delivery mechanism correct. in the AstraZeneca one. Correct. Right. Yep. So both of them are emulsifiers so that um, basically these little components get delivered um, to the cells. So it's sort of like a, a little bit of an oily emulsion that allows the, um, the, the um, active ingredients to get into, uh, into our, our bodies and, and cause the immune reaction that will then promote immunity to, to real infection. What are the significant differences between uh, the mRNA vaccines and the uh, traditional uh, vaccines and which ones are Australia receiving, uh, what age groups are receiving what? Uh, and if you had your pick, what would you take for yourself? Yeah, I mean, 
I would take whatever's given to me, um, not not because I'm blinded to it, but because I've got faith in both the vaccines. The efficacy so, of both, though? I mean, I mean, isn't one, uh, I've heard the Pfizer vaccines more efficient than the uh, AstraZeneca one? Yes, that's correct. So certainly in the clinical trials, the Pfizer vaccine is more um, effective in preventing infection. The AstraZeneca are a little less so. Um, so from the top of my head, it's around. It's in the 90s for the Pfizer vaccine and, and in sort of the 70s for the AstraZeneca vaccine. Uh, that's one number you look at. The other number you have to look at is how many lives will be um, protected from either of these two vaccines. And both seem to be very good in stopping people from dying or getting serious illness. So um, if I was to be offered one, whatever it is, I'd take it because I don't want to die from COVID-19 and I'd prefer not to spread it. Um, the Pfizer vaccine might be might be better in terms of stopping people from spreading it, but we just don't know that data. Um, in terms of the AstraZeneca vaccine, because it causes you know, those that do get infected despite having vaccine seem to have a, a very mild illness from COVID-19. So in all likelihood, they won't spread it as, as, as much as uh, someone who's not been vaccinated and is very sick and coughing everywhere and spreading the actual virus. So be happy to take either of the two vaccine. It becomes really the pragmatics of it. And you know, the intention of the government is, first of all, is to try their best to stop the virus getting into vulnerable communities, being aged care facilities, um, and those that are most likely to to suffer sort of severe consequences for, from getting infected. So the other aspect of it is to give it to uh, people that might transmit the, the virus uh, the most. So these would be hotel quarantine workers and frontline healthcare workers who would be exposed to the virus and could then pass it on to others, which is why the, the Pfizer vaccine is being given out first uh, to those high priority groups to really create, I suppose, a degree of ring of protection for our society. Uh, the next endeavour is to give it to as many people as possible. Uh, and uh, both of the vaccines are reasonably good at that level. We've been able to secure so many doses of the Pfizer vaccine. With the AstraZeneca vaccine, the reason why we can give it to all Australians is because it's manufactured here with the Pfizer vaccine. We've got no capability of manufacturing it ourselves. So. And it's a lot more difficult to store as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. So the Pfizer vaccine has to be transported at minus 70 degrees, which is a particularly, particularly cold freezer. So you, you won't be able to get out to very rural and remote communities with that vaccine unless you've got substantial infrastructure to deliver it. So the AstraZeneca vaccine makes much more sense because uh, uh, that doesn't need to be stored at, that, uh, at those tremendously cold temperatures. Should there be any scepticism about the mRNA uh, vaccines at all, just given how uh, new they are as a technology? Both both the vaccines new, use new technology. So the mRNA vaccine, if you look at it, it's it's probably as innocuous as you can get. <laughs> so you're not talking about a, a virus that's delivering it or some sort of artificial mechanism. Um, RNA exists in our bodies. That's the way that our, our whole biology works. It works on, on nucleic acids. So the nucleic acids can either be in the form of DNA, which is our, our genetic material, our building blocks. Um, and then the next step down is the DNA creates um, 
RNA, and the RNA is what actually makes the proteins or is, re is required as the instruction set to make proteins in our body. So this is basically just taking a tiny bit of mRNA, which tells our cells to make this particular protein. And this is what they do day in, day out. So our cells have, our cells have got heaps and heaps of RNA in them. Right. Most of that RNA is delivered by our chromosomes to give instruction sets to make proteins. In this particular case, where you know, we're using a syringe to deliver it into, into our bodies, but nonetheless, it's just another piece of RNA that hangs around. So no, there's no conceivable way that this is going to make your head fall off yeah, or, yeah. No, of or make you develop a cancer or anything like that because this is as, as pure a genetic material as you can get um, and is the building blocks for making proteins. And it's just an instruction set. So they're not actually delivering any virus. They're not delivering any um, proteins as such. It's just basically the instruction set. Uh, so it is one of the first vaccines to utilise that technology. So I can certainly understand you know, people's, I suppose, um, hesitancy in taking up a technology that hasn't been widely used before. Mm. The AstraZeneca vaccine also, I mean, it's we we don't generally use um, monkey viruses to... What is, a, what is a monkey virus when you said that? Is that uh, just a traditional vaccine? So no, so this uses what's... Um, it's an adenovirus. So it's a, a human, the human adenovirus is caused colds. The monkey adenovirus can't really cause colds in humans, but over and above that, they've taken this monkey cold-like virus and they've, they've prevented it from being able to replicate. So that's why it's safe to give to people who even don't have a, a great immune system. The rationale is here, the, the code for the spike protein of the coronavirus is integrated into this um, monkey adenovirus. So when the monkey adenovirus infects our human cells, one, we won't get a cold. Two, the actual monkey adenovirus can't replicate. But within there, it's acted as a delivery mechanism to deliver the, um, the DNA that then is changed into RNA that then forms the instruction right. set for making the proteins. So it's basically just a different mechanism to get this in there. But That's basically both of them are providing our bodies with an instruction set, uh, sort of like a little Lego book as to how to build your Lego structure. And then once we see our Lego, the Lego structure in our body, we basically start to develop an immune system Traditionally, what happens is in a lot of vaccines, we, we either take the little mini Lego structure itself and jam it into our bodies so that our bodies recognize it, or alternatively, we inactivate the original virus. So you might take the SARS-CoV-2 virus and inactivate it. You can heat inactivate it such that it can't replicate anymore. Uh, we're much more hesitant to do that because the quality assurance you need to make sure that there is absolutely zero live virus in there is actually not trivial um, and requires also massive bioreactors to be making not bucket loads, but... To get everything exactly right. Yeah, sure not that. so much that, but to actually make vi live virus and then kill it 
uh, is a huge undertaking. You need massive vats that are producing huge, huge amounts of SARS coronavirus too, and then you have to inactivate that. So it's not an easy endeavour. Um, but you know, some people, some countries have done that. Um, so China's certainly been able to make inactivated vaccines, which they're using. So they're sort of the more traditional approaches. Either you make a protein from the the virus, like the hepatitis B vaccine, is just basically the protein of hepatitis B. The 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 again sort of the 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 analogy of the spike protein of the SARS coronavirus two, measles, mumps, rubella are, are viruses that have been highly attenuated. Uh, BCG is a, vac- a bacteria that's been highly attenuated to vaccinate against. When you say attenuated, you mean you've you've changed the virus such that so this could easily it could either be because you've passaged it in tissue culture for such a long time that it's it's lost its ability to cause disease um so bcg came from a a cow originally um and the uh, measles mumps and rubella were all sort of passaged such that they lost their ability um could still infect but lost their ability to cause disease and that usually takes a protracted period of time but with a a virus that can kill up front um so i'm not trivialising measles, mumps, rubella, they cause disease and can actually cause some people to die. Um, with SARS coronavirus 2, you'd have to be absolutely certain that you've deactivated the virus completely. And if you're going to attenuate it, that's a pretty big undertaking to make sure it's never going to cause disease in anyone. And for the most part, the people that we would like to vaccinate the most are those that have probably got somewhat more of a vulnerable immune system that are less likely to be able to fight off a a virus. So you don't want to be sticking any sort of even attenuated viruses in those people. You want to be able to give them something that you're 100% safe is not going to replicate in them. And as you said, the vaccine is going to be safe even for people with the weakest immune systems in the population. Yes, I mean... There's certainly been discussions about should people who have a highly compromised immune system uh, be upfront to getting the vaccine or high prior, uh, prioritise for the vaccine. And the jury's out a little bit there, not because we think it's not safe to give them the vaccine, but just because if they have such a compromised immune system, their ability to develop immunity to the virus is going to be impaired, or rather their ability to develop immunity that's being driven by the vaccine is going to be impaired, right. so therefore the efficacy might be quite poor in those people. So we we just spoke about the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine being 90%. Well, that might dwindle down to 10% or even less. Mm. So what we're looking is to see as the vaccine is being spread out through the USA and through um, the UK and Europe, we'll be getting more and more information about vaccine being given to those sort of people, highly immunocompromised people, and we'll be able to make judgments um, around, well, okay, this vaccine seems to work better in those people as opposed to this vaccine. We're sort of letting uh, the US and the UK be the canary in the coal mine. Uh, you could look at it that so way, I pessimistically, but it's not yeah, far from the truth. I mean, so this, yeah, I, I think that's a reasonable thing. This whole thing has been a human experiment of sorts, like mm. from the start of COVID till now, um, every step of the way has been a learning process. If you look at experiments as being a learning process. So you know, the experiment of lockdown, the experiment of not locking down, the um, experiment of closing borders to see exactly how all of these pan out and what they do. So yeah, all the experiments that are being conducted today, um, you know, which are 
primarily population experiments of, of how to tr stop the virus entering Australia and what to do when it does uh, have been incredibly instructive, but it's a complete learning process. So there's no doubt that we will learn from these vaccines. That's not to say that they're not safe. Um, I think they are safe, but there will be learnings from them. And if we had to and learning wait, And learning in a way of not whether the vaccine itself is safe or not, but just how to administer it, more of the logistics, I imagine. And, and delivery, a absolutely right. I mean, how do you get a, a, a minus 70 vaccine, minus 70 Celsius vaccine out to remote areas? It's going to be incredibly tricky. Yeah, and we might learn that some vaccines are much, much better than others. One, one important point is that if you have one vaccine, doesn't mean you can't have another vaccine. So yeah, if people have the Pfizer vaccine today and then it turns out to be not as long-lasting as the AstraZeneca vaccine, doesn't stop you from having the AstraZeneca vaccine later. So if you're able to have both, go for it. Not really. Um, so um, you have to choose one or the other. And we, as Australians, we probably won't have a choice just because logistically we can't have a choice. If we want to try and rapidly administer this vaccine, it's, it's hard. But coming back to the point, can you mix and match? Well, the reason why you shouldn't mix and match. So it's not because of safety. It's because we don't know whether having a Pfizer vaccine, just one dose, and then having AstraZeneca vaccine, just one dose, is going to create the degree of efficacy that two doses of the Pfizer vaccine will create. When I say that you can have the Pfizer vaccine and then have the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's, you know, months down the track. So if you've had your full course of one and then it turns out that your immunity is, um, has waned, then there's no reason why you can't swap to the other vaccine next time around. But this whole mixing and matching you know, will take a degree of clinical trials, but it will be important to understand how long these vaccines, um, how long lasting the vaccine is after, after these um, immunity is after you've had these vaccines. We don't know that yet. So the Pfizer vaccine's only been out in the States since December, um, and so far it looks really good, but immunity... So then, are their numbers going down at the moment in America? Massively? They have gone down, but it's a complex situation because we yeah, it's very easy to attribute this to the fact that they've you know, vaccinated you know, almost 100 million now, um, which uh, they've vaccinated huge numbers. So to attribute it to just the vaccine might not be the, the root cause of why it's coming down. But yes, the numbers have come down. Huge numbers still. So, you know, it's, it's, it's like sort of saying that you know, they're, they're on top of it. They're not by, by no means that they're on top of it. But certainly it looks like it's turned the corner now and the number of infections they're getting is smaller. The number of people that are dying is, is smaller, but it's still well into the thousands. If you conduct uh, mass vaccinations while uh, a virus is rampant in the population, does that give the virus uh, more opportunities to mutate? And is that potentially why we're seeing variants emerge? Uh, that's a really cool question. <laughs> and Thank you. It's, uh, it's a super cool question and it's, it's probably deserving of a better answer than I'm able to provide, but I'll give it a go. Uh, one, because it probably requires a long answer. Um, but yes, absolutely. If you're vaccinating in a population where there's a huge amount of virus in the circulation, obviously the likelihood that one of the viruses which is in circulation is a little bit different um, and will escape that vaccine is going to be higher. Um, so yeah, to, to give the analogy, I suppose, in natural selection, uh, if, you've, if you've got you know, a, a million different little animals or frogs in a, in a pond 
and uh, there's a, a predator that only eats black frogs, um, and in that pond there's a million, the likelihood that one is, is blue and the predator won't eat it is reasonable. Whereas if you're talking about a pond that's only got about 10 frogs in there, the likelihood that one of them is going to be blue is much lower. So that's the analogy in, in terms of how it plays out with SARS-CoV-2. If you're in a country where there's a huge amount of virus in the circulation going around, um, then perhaps one of those viruses uh, will, will have some mutation. Uh, not that's driven by the vaccine, but rather that was always there, that's present before the vaccine, but the vaccine now doesn't work on that virus and then that becomes, starts to become more dominant in the population. Having said that, um, we still think that the vaccine would be protective for the people that get that mutant virus. So they might get sick. So rather than the efficacy of the Pfizer vaccine in preventing infection being you know, in the 90%, it might drop down to 60 but we would still um, say that in all likelihood, it would still provide a degree of protection for people. So, yeah, I mean, if the, the less virus that's around, the less likelihood that the an individual who's been vaccinated will encounter a variant uh, that is somewhat resistant to that virus. Um, as it turns out, the UK variant probably will still be covered pretty well by the vaccines. Yeah. With the South African variants, it looks like it um, might not be covered optimally by the AstraZeneca vaccine, but it will still protect people Just from dying from, yeah. from that South African variant. But yeah, they've been around predating the vaccine rollout. Uh, but certainly, yes, you know, if you have the South African variant in a population, you'll be selecting for that to become the more dominant strain if you're killing, well, if you're preventing people from getting infected with the more common variant. But this happens all the time. So, uh, yeah, we see this all the time with, with flu. Uh, with flu, um, people get immunised or people develop natural immunity. And the only way that flu can sustain itself in a population is, is to mutate. And so basically every, every year we have to tweak the, um, the vaccine so that it covers the new variants. So we you know, develop our Australian vaccine based on the the flu viruses that are circulating in the northern hemisphere and then the reverse happens um, the next flu season when the northern hemisphere adapts their vaccine to the variants that were, follow were in Australia. Mm. And this is all because these viruses are just so common, spread so well. Um, they're global viruses and so they spread everywhere. Uh, it's quite different, I suppose, with uh, infections that don't spread quite so well amongst a, a massive population where, where uh, mutants don't really um, uh, have to be considered all that carefully. Do you think that uh, globalisation has accentuated the threat of viruses today? There's no doubt about that. Um, it's many aspects of, of globalisation, but I think it's also to do with the fact that obviously we'll expect to see more and more of these viruses that sort of jump from some animals into humans because we've, um, I suppose, eroded or in uh, entered into the landscapes that we never were in before and so we're exposed to... What do you mean by that? Well, I, I think you can sort of take the example of, say, the Nipah virus, which was a virus that was prim primarily in the forest in bats, um, in areas that weren't particularly populated by people. And so when you start to get closer to um, different environments where humans haven't been before, um, you start to expose humans to a potential jump uh, that a virus that's living in, say, a bat can transfer or transmit into a human um, 
we've never seen those viruses before. So you know, viruses don't just magically arise, nor do bacteria. Uh, obviously, they're in a population. They change progressively over time. And so generally what happens is that uh, a virus takes a long, long time to make the jump between one animal to another animal. And you need a lot of mingling for that to happen, meaning you need – so for flu, we, we, we think um, – is in birds and from birds it goes to pigs and pigs are sort of like a mixing vessel they're the a little bit like host. a human yeah they're mm. a little bit like a human a little bit like a bird and so they they're able to take the human virus and they're able to take the um bird influenza virus and then you'll get rearrangements happening in a pig because it's susceptible to both or can house both of those viruses so generally speaking it takes quite a bit of time for a virus to jump a species um, for, for it to happen very, very quickly is, is unusual and pretty extraordinary. Is that what happened with COVID? Hard to know. It's, I think there'll need to be a lot of background work trying to understand um, how it jumped the species. And certainly that was the, uh, what the WHO or their agenda was when they went to China, was to try and understand um, how this could have happened, where it happened, and you know, how long has it been going on for. But yeah, it happens when, when humans start to encroach on other environments where there could be a viruses dwelling in other animals and we've never seen it before. And if there's a degree of intermingling, then it can jump into humans. For the most part, um, animal viruses would really struggle on first pass to get into a human. There's just so many differences. So all viruses are completely adapted to what we call their, their hosts. So human viruses um, can't really infect any other animals. Well, a lot of human viruses won't infect other animals. Um, they'll only infect humans, and so they're transmitted from human to human. Um, some viruses can infect other animals. So I mentioned flu can, other uh, coronaviruses can. But that needs a zoonotic adaptation for that to take place. Generally speaking, you need some intermingling of the viruses. Mm. So for flu, uh, yeah, presumably there'll be a pig that's infected with a, a human flu virus and a bird flu virus, and there'll be rearrangements of the, the viruses in that host. So coronaviruses are, um, can do that too. There can be segmental rearrangement where... Is that the same as... Uh, I was just doing a bit of reading in the lead up to this. Is that the same as uh, seroconversion? Is that the, the same thing? No, no. So seroconversion um, refers to um, an individual becoming immune or developing antibodies to the actual virus uh, or, or right. whatever it is. I, I thought that was like the blueprint almost for the uh, evolution of the virus uh, during a zoonotic... Uh, adaptation. So what will happen, for example, is that in any individual, uh, we'll start to develop antibodies against viruses. So someone who's naturally infected with a coronavirus will develop um, antibodies. So there's several human coronaviruses which are in circulation and will cause colds and other things. And then we've got the the MERS, SARS-1 and SARS-CoV-2, which are the, the, um, the really dangerous coronaviruses. So you get infected with those. And then um, if you survive, of them, which is the majority of people for SARS coronavirus 2, um, obviously a lot of people get very sick, they'll develop antibodies. Now, some of those antibodies, um, which we call seroconversion, i.e. changing from having no antibodies to some antibodies, could then put selective pressure on the virus or um, a virus can... Um, uh, um, infect a person and only the viruses that can escape those antibodies or that immunity will, 
will be right. able to take off on that person and then that person can transmit them again. So um, the antibodies that we develop, similar to the vaccines, can actually put pressure on the virus to change and mutate, but that won't make a virus jump a species. That'll only make a virus change so that then it can be faced with what I would call a, a naive population of people again. So the virus will will change that sticky tape a little bit. So I don't know, the analogy could be uh, rather than sort of plumber's tape, it changes to the sticky tape of, uh, of, of mask tape or something. So the stickiness changes sufficiently so that our immune system can't handle that. It becomes sticky again for ourselves and it infects ourselves. But yes, there's certainly uh, when we develop antibodies, um, uh, the, it, it will put some degree of selective pressure. Having said that, we don't know what a protective immune response looks like in someone who is completely who's just been infected with with uh, SARS-CoV-2. Do you sometimes view viruses and vaccines and as almost like works of art? They just hearing them described and how complex they are is just fascinating. How it is, it's, in, it's incredibly fascinating, um, but I certainly won't want to trivialise the harm they cause. So some some. Um, um, I love bacteriophages. So these are, are viruses that infect bacteria, which is super cool because anything that kills a bacteria, from my perspective, is, is a, a total winner. So there are some viruses that only infect bacteria and kill bacteria, and sometimes they're used to actually, well, in some countries they're trying to develop therapies that use these bacteriophages. But, yes, if you look at them under the microscope, they, they do look pretty amazing. So the dodecahedrons, all of these amazing structure, but bacteriophages are super, super cool. They've got these little legs um, that protrude out. So they're, they're super cool, but yeah, it, it's hard to call anything cool or amazing that kills people. I don't know about that because you can, I mean, a, a blacksmith loves making swords, but he doesn't necessarily like what they're used for. I think you're allowed to be... Hmm, fascinated with it yeah i think certainly they are incredibly uh, fascinating and i think that um equally fascinating is you know humans ability to quickly um try and adapt to those uh, viruses and change so you know, we haven't got time to evolve um otherwise we'd be you know, be killing the majority of the human population to be able to evolve to become immune or escape SARS-CoV-2 so we really have to use human ingenuity and I suppose from from that perspective both virus is uh, ingenious in the way that um it encodes it mutates on a very, very basic level, obviously viruses don't have brains and don't understand that they have to change to infect more humans. It just happens naturally. But yeah, just as intriguing is the fact is is what we've been able to achieve um, in such a short period of time. Everything from from protecting uh, vulnerable population to making vaccines. It's it's all incredibly amazing what we've been able to do. You mentioned before the WHO investigation. Uh, what do you think about the credibility of that investigation? Um, so I think they were reasonably comfortable and they would have liked to have seen um, more data, is my understanding. Um, but they certainly had enough data at their hands to be able to get some insight into how this could have happened. So I think they were pretty much convinced that you know, amongst the conspiracy theories, we can debunk the likelihood that, that China was making some sort of germ warfare. There's fingerprints in viruses that would be able to let you know that this has been manufactured as opposed to a virus that's naturally evolved. But I don't think it's... Um, 
I don't think it's far-fetched or conspiratorial to think. I think it is to, to think that they deliberately would make a would make um, COVID and release that. But isn't um, an accidental lab leak hypothesis at, at least worth indulging? I I think that um, again, if we're talking about something being made in the laboratory, mm-hmm. um, you have to ask yourself, well, what's what for what purpose was it being made? And but, but isn't that what a gain of function experiment does? Though, is it accelerates the uh, a, a virus to the point where it is transmissible human to human uh, so that you can create a vaccine uh, in advance for that? Um, to a degree. So, yes, we, we often do in the laboratory lots of gain of function, but it's for a purpose. So the generally the, the, the purpose would be to interrogate what's important or not important for a virus to cause disease. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to understand, you know, why they would take a SARS virus, which we already know to be quite nasty and bad, and to try and start adapting it to infect um, humans. I think that it's the... Don't you, don't you do that to anticipate uh, the virus uh, getting to that state naturally so that you have a vaccine ready to combat it? Uh, look, yes and no. I mean, if it's not actually there, um, then why would you create something that can suddenly infect everybody? Um, so, but, but isn't it there if, it's, if, it's a, if they're saying it developed zoonotically? Isn't it there in nature? Uh, that's correct, but it, uh, I suppose because it never jumped into humans and you never identified it into humans, you never sort of had the insight to think that it would jump into humans and therefore you'd need something to vaccinate. I mean, it's, I think fundamentally the concept you're, you're, you're promoting is, is, is something that would be quite interesting. Like we, we, we are trying to predict which viruses might become dominant. Um, at the level of sort of surveying the population, seeing what's out there. Um, and I don't have great insight um, around whether there are certain pockets or laboratories in any country, really, that are trying to make vaccines for for viruses that aren't in the human population yet. Um, and I certainly don't think that... Uh, I don't think that there would have been intention to make a germ warfare agent out of SARS... Um, and in trying to do that, they're also making a vaccine. I think that would be unlikely and certainly something that the mm. WHO um, s- tried to debunk as best as possible. Do you know who Dr. Stephen Quay is? Have you no. heard of him? He's a, um, a medical doctor uh, from America and he published a paper uh, about three weeks ago and he's, uh, he used a Bayesian statistical analysis, which just for the listeners is... Um, even used within the legal system to determine guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. He used uh, that to look at all the agreed upon facts um, over the outbreak of COVID. And he reached um, the conclusion that a laboratory origin for COVID is 99.8% likely. The main thing he points to is the existence of furin cleavage sites, which he says don't exist in any other coronaviruses. And that coronaviruses, in fact, naturally evolve away from uh, developing furin sites is that the reason I ask this is because I have no idea and you read an article like that and I need someone like you to uh, either debunk or confirm it yeah I certainly viruses rely on a lot of human enzymes to be able to process them and, and cleave them so I, I don't find that the, the fact that they're these um, 
these uh, sites that need to be cleaved by human enzymes as to uh, be indicative of the fact that this was made in a laboratory. Uh, generally, like if you look at the whole sequence of a, of a virus, you, you can sometimes, especially if it's a recombinant virus that's been made by recombination uh, through human endeavours, you, you can see sort of little... Um, uh, I, I suppose um, cut and paste series in, mm. in the virus, and that certainly wasn't all that obvious. The other thing is that if you start looking out, like you know, if this was a laboratory-made virus, then you would say that there should be no animal reservoir for this virus. It was made in the laboratory. Um, why would it have been released into an animal population unless they wanted to cause harm to themselves? So the fact that there seems to be an animal reservoir. What is the animal reservoir, though? Well, they're still sort of investigating as to what the original animal reservoir was. Rhinophilus affinis, the the bat, was that the one that they... There's certainly bats that would be able to house it, but as to whether that was the the sort of, I suppose, the, the main reservoir of this particular virus. So um, you know, it could have been through bats, it, it could have been through um, other animals. SARS-CoV-1, I think they pinned down on a, on a few... Um, a few animals to, to as the main mechanism. So, did, did they manage to identify uh, the host for this one though for for COVID? I don't think we've made a definitive assessment as to what the host is, but I think you're right. I think that the bat could be a likely candidate. Bats, um, unfortunately, are the new are the fleas of the modern century. Unfortunately, mm. um, but yeah, I think that the. Uh, all of that taking, I mean, it's really just the collective evidence. I suppose you can you could sort of point to being a laboratory agent if you look at just one one piece of evidence. But if you look at the whole collective uh, uh, um, uh, scenario, then I suppose that really it makes it unlikely that this was something uh, that was made in a laboratory for the purposes of doing what I don't know. What, why is that unlikely though? I just don't. I don't, I don't understand why it would be. Unlike if, if they, we know that they do these gain of function experiments and we know that that lab in particular had the most comprehensive list of uh, coronavirus, back coronaviruses in the world. Why wouldn't we at least wonder if, the, if that's where it came from? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, look, I, I, I get where you're coming from and I can understand um the, the reasons are certainly in Australia there's a whole lot of legislative layers that stop us from doing these sorts of things and they would certainly be present in many, many countries um, to protect their own population, if nothing else. So, yeah, really you'd have to be talking... Well, I don't think China really cares about that too much. But. <laughs> so I think that um, yeah, when we do gain-of-function experiments is to particularly look at biology of particular viruses. Um, so yeah, if you're doing that, it's to ask a, a, a biological question that would be important. Um, so, yeah, for example, to take a... A coronavirus and change it into to SARS to make it more pathogenic to to humans. You'd have to say, well, what what exact what question are you trying to ask? Are you making a Frankenstein virus Ma to, well, to maybe, what end? But maybe you'd ask if it has a furin site injected into it. Doesn't that make it more transmissible human to human? Yes. Yeah, so Perhaps that's what they were experimenting on. Coming back to so yeah, basically you're saying that the question was purely academic as to how can we make a virus transmissible transmissible mm. to humans and cause disease in humans. Um, yeah, I, I think that, again, coming back to the point of legislative oversight and making sure that we don't cause harm, for the most part, uh, there is a, 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 
a sort of unspoken law, but even a written law that really stops us from doing those experiments. We just don't want to create... In Australia, but not in China. I believe that they would also have their own oversights around sort of causing harm to their own population. I mean, you know, no country wants the economic grief mm. that's been caused by what we've seen. So again, I'd come back to the WHO and saying, I haven't seen the totality of data. I mean, we can all jump to conclusions based on any one piece of evidence that we choose to take no, out I, of the I don't cabinet. To, I don't want to jump to any conclusions, but I just want to uh, have all potential conclusions on the table. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's very very reasonable. But I don't think that you can look at you know if you've got a filing cabinet of evidence, mm. I don't think you should just take one file out and say, well, here they go, that's proof. When there could be a substantial um, other set of data that says that well, that's very unlikely, or uh, yeah, that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there was an animal reservoir mm. that's predated everything for a long time that had capacity. Dr. Quay makes the point that the bat, uh, is it rhinophis, rhinolophus affinis, is that the name for it? Sounds good. Yeah, the horseshoe bat. Anyway, uh, he makes a point that uh, the horseshoe bat uh, that they initially claimed was the uh, host actually uh, lives 1,900 kilometres away from where the uh, virus broke out. Uh, he also said in his paper in relation to lavage patient samples from four people in Wuhan, uh, this is a quote, surprisingly, the specimens also contain the adenovirus P shuttle vector developed by Chinese scientists in 2005 for SARS-CoV-1. Two immunogens were identified, the spike protein gene of SARS-CoV-2 and the synthetic construct H7N9HA gene. Hundreds of perfectly homologous raw reads suggests that this is not an artifact. Um, he believes that this is evidence of a clinical trial of a combination influenza SARS-CoV-2 vaccine uh, and an accidental release into Wuhan. Does that sound credible at all to you? Because as I said, I'm a layman, you're the expert. What, what does that sound like to you? Yeah, I, and I think this is where you do have to defer to experts, I suppose, and mm. the consensus amongst the experts. So I think you'll always find that there's one person who has a case to make and we should listen to that case. But I come back to the point where we have a, a, a whole bundle of evidence, a filing cabinet of evidence, and I would be trusting of the WHO in terms of I'm not sceptical of their decision and I certainly know that there's great experts in that panel. Uh, what their main emphasis was was to try and understand how many people were getting infected in China, how long it was going on for, uh, and how much opportunity there was to try and stop or prevent the, the virus from spreading globally. So I, I, I would certainly have to defer to them, one, because I appreciate that they are experts in this event and they've seen the totality of the data. Um, but they haven't. But what sort of made this interesting, I thought, was that they haven't seen the totality of the data and there is less and less of a consensus within the scientific community. There's sort of, there seem to be a lot more experts, quote unquote, uh, who are subscribing to the lab leak uh, idea. Yeah, I mean, I think that the the what you're referring to in terms of not seeing the totality of the data, I think, is um, their inability to interview patients. Also, but also the fact, I mean, the the Chinese experts over there have distorted a lot of the data. Xi Cheng Li, the doctor over there, didn't actually put the presence of furincytes out uh, in the when she released the original uh, genome sequence of uh, COVID-19. So they're, 
deliberately distorting evidence, which is in and of itself suspicious. Uh, that's more what I mean when they haven't seen the totality of the data. Yeah, it was certainly, I mean, you can't hide that. So that's become quite apparent to everyone mm-hmm. when they, when we've got the sequence of the virus. So everyone's got that sequence. The WHO's got that sequence. So everything's on the table now. So uh, we can read whatever we want into the mm-hmm. sequence of the actual virus now. And again, I come back to the fact that uh, you know, the WHO certainly was able to look at that and, and make an assessment as to whether it looked like it was a but, completely but, engineered but, but what is the evidence that they say that it is a zoonotic? Uh, evolution that that created COVID? What what evidence are they pointing to? So, I mean, we certainly know that um, the MERS is a zoonotic infection, so it's spread from camels to humans. Uh, SARS-1, which is you know, shows a great degree of, of homology to SARS-2, um, was a zoonotic infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we certainly know that there's a lot, you know, e- Ebola and so on and so forth. So it's not as if this is unheard precedence. And it's certainly people might argue, well, it's, you know, there's, there might be precedence for a laboratory manufacturing of virus uh, that, that's going to cause disease. Well, to date, I can't think of any. Um, so this would be the, the very first time that anyone has engineered a virus specifically for some weird science to understand how it can how a and virus got, can be transmitted and, to And the first time it's gone wrong. And the first time that's gone wrong. That's true. I mean, it has to be overlaid, overlaid with the fact that uh, it was released. But I, I must just be reading bizarre articles though because it said oh i read one article where it said between 2008 and 2012 1100 laboratory incidents involving bacteria viruses and toxins that pose significant risk to people in agriculture were reported to federal regulators in the u.s and again i'm the layman but speaking as a layman is it maybe time to sort of reassess the way we study viruses and uh, sort of put a moratorium on gain of function experiments in general yeah, well, there's cert- I think uh, that's certainly a very interesting and important point, and we do. So uh, our um, office of the gene technology regulator, if you're talking about genetic engineering now, um, has great oversight around what experiments can and can't be done in Australia, and likewise in the States. Um, so there's, there's uh, great oversight into what can and can't be done. And generally, um, if there's any gain of function mutation, that requires a license. It's a license dealing, so it has to go to a panel of experts who decide whether this could cause problems or not. So um, the nuances around um, the release of genetically modified or or the unintentional release of genetically modified organisms is always a a problem in any sort of, um, I suppose, experimentation with viruses and so on. But the the intention here is obviously quite different. So here you're trying to make a virus that causes, infects human and causes diseases in humans. Um, that's generally not what we try and do. Uh, in some occasions, what we try and do is create a gain of function so a virus that's in a human can now infect another animal um, and we do that for the specific purpose is because a virus is causing a disease in human and we want an, a model um, that we can look at we can test drugs in and so on and so forth so that's also a gain of function but obviously it's a gain of function that's you know, not going to cause disease in in humans because the virus is already there causing disease so that would be again you know that could equally be seen as a, a major environmental disaster. And again, there's a major oversight around even causing those gain of functions, you know, taking a human virus that can now infect a cat. I mean, that would be devastating um, for any country um, in terms of uh, an environmental Already disaster. Already cat owner. 
yeah, or a cat owner. Um, but uh, yeah, certainly don't want any any um, any viruses or anything else entering into our domestic mm. population. So yeah, I mean, I sort of think that the um, China, like any other country would want to protect its population. It's got an investment there to look after. Um, any individual sort of, they you know, they might take a different approach. But if you're talking about a population, um, obviously any country or any government's country would want to try and protect their population. So I'm sure they'd have oversight of those things in China. Um, so I think it would be, um, again, unlikely that those type of experiments would be done. Um, and if they were done, um, where you're creating a, a virus that could infect humans, it would definitely be done at an incredibly secure level or a secure laboratory. So you know, these are um, some of the things that you would probably do in what we call a BSL-4 or, or higher um, um, facility to make sure that they don't get um, escape. But yes, uh, coming back to your first point, yeah, there's, there's lots of... Um, what we call um, uh, non-intentional minor releases. So yeah, we've heard a bigger one was was when we um, we had the, the the virus that infects rabbits and tries to kill rabbits. Uh, that was unintentionally released and, and jumped across to the Australian mainland was another example. But there's many many things. So we just don't want anything that's been genetically modified to be released, whether it be something that makes wheat hardier or um, makes a grass grow longer. Uh, these are all the things that you're talking about in terms of uh, there's oversight. And I think probably the most important thing is that there's transparency in that reporting. Mm. And I think, if anything, I feel very confident that there's that transparency in reporting all of these GMOs and the potential unintentional release of them. Mm, that's reassuring to hear. I just, I'm certainly not saying it originated in a, in a virology lab, but I do think that the lab leak theory should be regarded as apolitical um, just because, I mean, there's three labs in Wuhan which held the largest inventory of bat viruses in the world um, and it's also where the initial outbreak occurred. So I just sort of, I don't know, I just got the feeling that it was a, it was a theory that Trump subscribed to early on and I feel that sort of made it a toxic idea for a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I would certainly, I would never take it off the table unless a panel of experts said categorically um, it's not on the table anymore. And um, our I think that it's it's great to have these discussions. Um, I think it gets a little bit dangerous, as I said, when you've got a filing cabinet of evidence and people are plucking what they like to support sure. their particular, um, well, whether it's an agenda or, or, or whether it's a, a theory that they particularly prescribe to. So I, I, I personally haven't seen the totality of the evidence. So I'm not... But couldn't you say that same point to, um, I mean, Peter Dashak and... Uh, Dr. Shi Sheng Li have the most to lose if this originated in a lab, and yet they're heading the investigation. It's like getting the murderer to, you know, document the crime scene. Yeah, you'd like to think that there's a degree of independence amongst the other you'd investigators. Like to think. Yeah, for so sure. Certainly, um, we had an Australian um, uh, investigator on that whole panel who has actually been interviewed as well. Um, and took a bit of issue with the fact that they weren't able to get some of the mm. patient records or the raw data around some of the patient records, which, which is which is important from an epidemiological point of view, but less so to to uh, point the finger at any one individual or any any one laboratory. But um, yeah, mm. look, I, I would yeah if. If someone said, I want you to provide me with every single bit of evidence to say that this was not made in a laboratory, mm. I would say, well, 
I'm relying on the WHO because they've seen all the evidence as best they can. Um, And if evidence was excluded um, on the evidence that they had at hand, Mm. there's still nothing to implicate it. So uh, based on what they had, it was uh, clear that it was unlikely to come from a laboratory. Um, If there was a piece of data that uh, was excluded from that, uh, then I think they still would have made the same decision as, again, the the pros outweighed the likelihood, well, sorry, the the evidence um, to say that it was a zoonotic infection that spread into humans was was greater than the the likelihood that anything else occurred, i.e. that this was a genetically modified Mm -hmm. organism that was made intentionally as a gain of function Mm -hmm. as a, a weird experiment to see if they could infect humans. I just think it would be a massive shame if, and I mean, as I said, you're the expert. Uh, I certainly would defer to your opinion, hence why I got you on here. But I just, it'd be a real shame if uh, sort of sociological factors like people's aversion to being labelled a conspiracy theorist or uh, being labelled as a Trump supporter. Um, it'd be a shame if phenomena like that were to interfere with a objective analysis of where this virus originated. Totally agree. Um, I totally agree. So I think, yeah, I'm all for having discussions. Mm. Um, But, you know, we can transfer exactly the same discussion to a whole lot of things, including vaccination and people saying you shouldn't get vaccinated. People who say the whole COVID-19 is a complete conspiracy theory, that there is no virus, that it's just... uh, But some conspiracy theories hold more substance than others absolutely i i totally agree and i think that they should all be put on the table Mm. um and all the evidence to debunk them should be put on the table and i think that's certainly what we've been doing um i don't think that um any of the people or any of the europeans australians or americans on that panel had any vested interest in in trying to uh, cover up an accident in China. Well, because I, well, I thought about this and I thought if it does turn out that uh, it was a lab leak hypothesis, sorry, a lab leak origin, I don't think China is going to be held to account for it regardless. So I, I'm not even interested in seeing them uh, held to account for it. But I think if we did find out that uh, it leaked from a laboratory, it would become a watershed moment for gain-of-function experiments in the same way Chernobyl was for... Um, nuclear power plants it would call into question the way we're experimenting on viruses a bit more and perhaps appropriately yeah Uh, i think that already exists i think we've already got great oversight um in these things we've always understood that uh, a gain of function mutation uh, is very dangerous which is why we have very strict regulations as to what is and is not permitted Um, and i said that any gain of function mutation has to be approved well the theory behind a gain-of-function mutation has to be approved by the Office of the Gene Technology Regulator um, in Canberra before anything can be undertaken. That, that's our country. Uh, US is very similar. I'm sure that China's got their equivalent over there as well, again, to protect their population. Uh, but, yes, I mean, obviously we've, we've always known that a gain-of-function mutation can be dangerous. But... Yeah, dangerous in in the fullest breadth of how it can be dangerous. I mean, we mentioned how if you have a mutation that uh, suddenly be, uh, causes one particular wheat crop to become dominant and that wheat crop is completely dependent on a particular chemical that only one manufacturer in the world makes. I mean, that's... that's uh, an absolute uh, horror to even think about. So obviously there's a tremendous amount of oversight from all the aspects of what a genetically modified um, organism can do. Uh, 
I think that there's tremendous value in making GMOs and there's also dangers and we've always understood that. Um, so I don't necessarily agree with it being a watershed moment because we've always appreciated that as a danger and in recognising it, we've always had this um, great oversight um, uh, to make sure that we're not creating uh, dangerous organisms. Um, a lot of organisms have a gain of function simply by being transmitted in the population. So we've certainly found even amongst SARS-CoV-2, it developed a gain of function over time so that it could infect other animals. So yeah, we found this 501 mutation in, in the virus that's in Australia and also um, in the UK and in South Africa, which now allows the virus to sort of in, infect mice and a few other um, animals as well, minks, um, when they had the, 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 uh, the minks in the truck they found that some of those were so that was a mutation that happened um, naturally as it, as it was being transmitted in humans for one or other reason or rather it was gained at some uh, sometimes naturally so uh, many ga gain of function mutations are actually acquired through natural selection um, as these things passage through through humans and other animals is there any consensus uh, now as what the best type of approach to combating COVID was as far as lockdowns go, restrictions? Is there, has one country done it better than others? I think that it'll be... I mentioned um, that this was all a huge experiment for all of us. So I think we'll all look back and, and sort of say, well, what has and hasn't worked? Um, and you could take the American approach of less, let's just say it doesn't exist and see what happens. And we can see what happened. A lot of, a lot, a lot of people died. Disaster. Um, and then you can take the, the isolationist approach of Australia where we, we haven't died, but we're now left in this sort of, oh, sorry, that that number of people hasn't died. Um, but we're, we're now in this tricky situation where, um, you know, what do we do? Like the, uh, the, the U S is sort of, looks like it might be coming out of it. They're vaccinating a huge number of people and, and now we have to sort of start catching up in, in many ways. Um, so it'll be, it, it'll be very interesting looking back to see what approach has been best. And one example would be Sweden in terms of how they approached it with their, with their own directive. Saying, they well, stayed open, didn't they? They did. They left it up to people, so they provided a recommendation. And again, that didn't end up being anything you know that that seemed to have its own problems a lot of virus spread and people died so in looking back at it i think we will need to make exactly that assessment and say well what was the um, impact on mental health the impact on the economy the impact on individuals lives and only then can we say well okay if something like this was to happen again this would be the action that we would take and i think Probably the biggest lesson we've learnt is to take things very seriously. So I think you know, the US took the approach of it's not going to hurt us. We're the biggest country in the world and we'll be able to tackle it. And they quickly learnt that that wasn't the correct approach because it impacted their population quite dramatically. And I think, you know, all credit to the Australian government in taking the approach of closing our borders very, very quickly uh, to try and mitigate the virus coming in. And New Zealand was the same too. So... Yeah, it'll be, it'll be super cool to look back and say what has and hasn't worked. I don't want to give Dan Andrews any ideas, but would it almost be a good idea to do a lockdown just before you start vaccinating everyone to what we were saying before about it being dangerous to uh, conduct a mass vaccination whilst there's a lot of the virus in the population? 
So, um, no, I don't think a lockdown would be warranted because we've got virtually no virus um, circulating right. at the moment. Um, Sorry, but if if the that would be the best time to ensure uh, that there's as little virus out there as possible when you're actually conducting the vaccination, correct? Uh, sort of. So if we get if we take the American example where there's there was a mammoth amount of virus, the mm. the urgency in getting the vaccine out was to protect people from dying. So. Sure, there might be an escape mutant um, as long as there's surveillance, making sure that there are people, you know, we're checking the genetic code of the virus to see whether it's mutating or not, and then we'd have to adapt the vaccine. But they were in a terribly tricky position. Um, we're in a particularly fortunate position of not having any virus. If we had a tremendous amount of virus, I think, again, the priority would turn back to we need to vaccinate to save lives um, and to somehow quell this amount of, of disaster. So it comes comes back to the point where a lock is a lockdown going to achieve this? And in the States, a lockdown probably um, won't have impacted on their dilemma um, as quickly as vaccine rollout will impact on their dilemma. Right. Uh, who invented vaccines back in the day? Like who, how, how old are vaccines? How long have they been around for? Oh, they've been um, incredibly uh, very, very old. So yeah, going back to sort of the days of smallpox and tuberculosis and the likes of Cockins and, and Jenna who sort of made the, the early vaccines. And so what, what, um, what some of those... Is when is that? Oh, goodness. Um, you're testing my, my textbook recollection like hun- of <laughs> hundreds like of years ago. Hundreds of years ago. Well, 100 years ago right. or thereabouts. I was thinking there might be some, I don't know, like medieval... Early example of it or something, but well, that, it would be it would be relatively medieval. So we're talking back, you know, even smallpox. They, uh, yeah, they they started to take uh, um, yeah, the the actual um, uh, virus itself and uh, people who for, for weren't quite so well and inject a tiny bit in, into. How into did they know how to do that though? That's so. Uh, well, like, yeah, the whole theory behind, I suppose, people becoming or developing immunity to virus was sort of uh, a vague understanding. Um, and so, yeah, with, with tuberculosis, which is another example of a, of a, uh, of a vaccine, which is the, the cow. So they sort of looked at the cows who had a similar um, bacteria and thought, well, why don't we take the cow one and see and passage it in in uh, in little petri dishes and see if it comes out to be less toxic to humans or or bad to humans and we'll use that as a, a vaccine. So the the theory's been there for a while. So either you take the germ and you inactivate it, and so that it doesn't cause disease. Uh, but yeah, you're looking the. Uh, yeah, you can attribute it to one person or you can attribute it to many in terms of those that contributed to the knowledge around immunity and it's more vaccines. The latter. Yeah, and I think yeah, a lot of people contributed to the whole. Yeah, just to understand that germs are responsible for a lot of human Takes diseases a lot of would uh, is a contribution to the fact that you can you can develop vaccines. I must have saved hundreds of millions of lives over the years. Yeah, I think that it certainly has. I mean, I think in terms of... Um, Massive medical discoveries which have impacted um, humanity. I would say that you know, hygiene theory was one of them, and then uh, vaccination is is another. Um, it saved a tremendous number of lives, uh, and also I, I think uh, a, a lot of yeah, we we talk about mortality, but don't forget there's morbidity too. So yeah, polio might not kill someone, but they're left without the ability to to use all of their body and they have to be on ventilators. So yeah, there's uh, vaccines have been tremendously infect, 
effective in actually preventing a, a lot of uh, uh, bad diseases. Would the mRNA vaccine have not been possible without CRISPR technology and gene editing technology that CRISPR uses? You certainly need uh, um, aspects of gene te- technology or gene modifying technology um, to be able to do this. CRISPR has revolutionised our ability to do it, uh, I suppose, very, very accurately, accurately. Mm. Um, and very efficiently. Uh, it used to be a bit more tedious and take a bit bit more work to do. A few more monkeys with three arms before you <laughs> got to the... So it's certainly become a lot easier to do those. Uh, but, you, you know, th- I'd hasten to add that, again, there's a massive degree of overlay. I mean, even in terms of sort of the the adenovirus that was the monkey adenovirus that's been created to, to deliver the instruction code that allows us to develop immunity to SARS-CoV-2, um, had to go through, obviously, the European licence dealings for them to uh, make sure that this... this uh, uh, a particular um, genetically modified organisms of sort, which is inactivated at the end of the day, can't replicate, um, is perfectly safe. Mm. Uh, from a theoretical perspective, obviously, you don't know until you oh, put it into I'm not. I'm not questioning the uh, safety of CRISPR. I just find it so exciting. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to be oh, in an look, X-Men movie. I think um, CRISPR is, is really quite amazing. It's amazing. Um, and to think that um, what, what's most amazing about it is it, um, it wasn't our invention. It was our adaptation. If we come back to something we mentioned a while ago, which was bacteriophages, which are viruses of bacteria. So this was a method the bacteria used to become immune to viruses and and little bits of genetic material. So um, it was discovered in bacteria and then everyone thought, well, you know, what's this going to be used for? And it was really the the jump when someone said, well, hold on, we can adapt this such that... Wasn't there like a Japanese team in the early 90s that saw evidence of it and then it wasn't until... Uh, what's her name? Doudna. What's her first name? Yeah, Jennifer Doudna, and she realised what it could be used for. Is that correct? You're quite right. I mean, there's there's many medical discoveries with which have had iterations over time. You know, people make this incremental discovery or maybe even a big discovery, but it's full on adaptation um, takes a while. The other thing, there's many many scientists that don't publish, uh, have made the result or publish in very small journals that are, are never really seen and others take it up and progress it. So yeah, the contribution around the knowledge in any single topic, whether it be CRISPR or whatever, um, generally takes a, a large number of scientists. And um, we always give credit to one or two, but there's probably been an, a large number of, of unsung scientists who have actually contributed to to a lot of these. It's, uh, it's important to recognise those people. And, and as much as we hold up uh, individuals uh, quite highly for making big, uh, big uh, major discoveries, there was probably many people that contributed to that science. Need to make a few more Nobel Prizes <laughs> to dish out. I had um, Christopher Gingell on, who's a gene editing ethicist and... Just seem, it seems like CRISPR just seems like the most significant scientific discovery since the nuclear bomb or something. It's just yeah, oh, I think that um, world, world changing. It is world. Ch- I mean, it's you know, we're still at the very early stages, so we probably don't even know its full potential. We've adapted it even further recently, so that. Um, 
it can actually diagnose infections. So, you know, we have lots of problems diagnosing infections, and you've seen that even with SARS-CoV-2, uh, it's we sometimes we get it right. Um, well, usually we get it right. Very rarely we get it wrong. But, you know, we need that speedy diagnosis is, is critically important. And CRISPR can actually be used as a diagnostic device as well. And that's... It can be used for everything. But... <laughs> Don't know. Maybe it can make pizza. I'm not sure. But uh, turn your green, <laughs> make it jacked. Yeah, do whatever so you want. I think that it, it it we we haven't obviously seen everything that it can do. I think I think it's like our tech, technological abilities outstripped our ethical knowledge as well. We're sort of hesitant to know what things we're playing with. I think that's a a, a pretty big. Um, uh, topic or uh, in and of itself is to uh, obviously we need to look at the ethics um, the dangers of all of these things and obviously they need to catch up science can run pretty quickly and you know, we've talked about some of the dangers of that happening although I don't think it was involved in our current pandemic um, but certainly you know we very much appreciate that all of this, all of these things, have got ethical implications, have got health implications, have got major environmental implications, and we would never trivialise that. Uh, and I don't think that any individual science scientists would put their work over and above, um, you know, the humanity. There's no academic interest, is what I'm saying. Mm. Um, there always has to be with a lot of these things, the, the greater interest of humanity. So I think very much we need to have discussions around these, particularly um, the ethics of, uh, of using CRISPR, I suppose, in, um, in, in embryos and babies and so on. Uh, mm. It really has to be the ethics of... of uh, and, and, you know, ethics is not one individual's judgment. It's, it's the society's judgment. So you know, uh, what I think might be ethical might not be palatable to many, many people and I'd be accepting of that and I'd say, well, that's the ethical consensus of our society is that it's unacceptable. Mm. But would you invest in CRISPR? <laughs> um, I think that uh, uh, CRISPR is a technology that's going to be uh, fundamental to a lot of science, to a lot of health. Um, I'm not sure. you saying would I invest in a particular company? Or if you know any, I'd love um, to hear it. Uh, so certainly, I think there's the the patent landscape and who owns this and who owns that will be something well, actually, that will be fought out in the courts for a long time coming. So Chris, Chris, who I had on uh, to talk about this, actually said that Jennifer Doudna is it Jennifer? Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. Jennifer Doudna actually lost the patent dispute because there was some when she was developing CRISPR, she there was some redundant variable to how she was conducting the experiment, which legally meant that she couldn't get the patent on it, and this um, some other guy has run away with the trillions of dollars. Oh, is that right? Yeah. yeah. So certainly at, at the moment in Australia, um, there's I think that there's still no patent on aspects of CRISPR. And very much it depends on how it's being applied. And uh, so, yeah, I think you just have to watch this space. Um, and, uh, yeah, if you're seeking investments, um, <laughs> I'm not sure. There's probably quite seeking a few companies. Seeking gorilla jeans and a pot of gold. <laughs> Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for coming on uh, today, Mark, and it's been really informative and uh, good to sort of dispel some of the myths about vaccines and viruses and, uh, yeah, really appreciate it. Yeah, no, it was a very fun conversation. <laughs>